Iconic makeup artist. Beauty industry revolutionary. Entrepreneur. Bobby Brown is all these things and so much more. Throughout her career, she has crossed paths with some of the most accomplished people at the top of their field. These conversations are a look into their inspiring lives because everyone has a story. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown. Andre Leontali is an icon. He is a journalist, he is a fashion editor, he is a fashion icon. He's had the most incredible life. He's met people and worked with people from Andy Warhol to Diana Vreeland to Anna Wintour, Karl Lagerfeld. The name goes on like the who's who in fashion. A lot of what we're wearing today is because of the decisions Andre made in fashion. If Andre says we're yellow, we all wear yellow. He also has a documentary done on his life, The Gospel According to Andre. I first met Andre many years ago, early on in my career at a Vogue shoot. He was not only tall, he was incredibly intimidating. I was a nervous young makeup artist until I got to know Andre and realized he is a pussycat. Here's my conversation with the one and only Andre Leontali. Andre, it's so nice to see you. Wonderful to see you, Bobby. Yeah, I was trying to think um, when the first time we met. Could it have been? I think I remember. Well, you you tell me. It was definitely Vogue magazine. Was it? I remember Gad Cohn was the hairdresser. And was it with Cindy Crawford? I might have been. Yeah, I think we met yeah. with Cindy. When we, I realized when you were very close with Cindy. Yeah. We did Cindy shoots. Yeah. Yes, but I, I did a bunch of things with you back then. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and then I I was very nervous the first time I met you. Of course you were. Why are people nervous to meet you? Because I'm now so that tall. I, uh-huh, well, I'm not maybe. And, and you're, you're maybe not as tall as tall I'm, as I, but people are nervous when they see tall people. Yeah, you think? Yeah. How tall are you? 6'6". Six, 6'6". Six, 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 six. Six. How yeah. tall is... Uh, how tall is my, my tallest? Yao Ming. I had a picture taken with Yao Ming once. Uh, and he's yeah. seven feet. Yes. He's so, seven feet tall. Yes. <laughs> but And then I saw you again in London Yeah. for Loren's fashion show. Yeah. Yeah. She so, was a great friend. Yeah. and A and, wonderful person. And uh, and have it, and we had dinner together with Mick and yeah, all the stones. Yeah, she was, was so, so wonderful. Cool. God, Loren was her. amazing. I cannot even. She's believe. greatly missed. Yeah, I I I was didn't realize how close I was too until she passed away, because then everyone's telling me, oh, she always talked about you in her studio and everything. Uh, you know, she cared about my opinion, but I really adored her. You know. Yeah. And I adored her when she was a stylist too, before she became designer. When she was this stylist for the Oscars one year, she got hired to do to advise the Oscars, and she was styling all the people at the Oscars. And then she did the costumes for, um, what's that woman's name? That fabulous lady who did uh, Basic Instinct. The star. Um, Glenn Close? No, not no. Basic Instinct. Sharon Stone? Sharon Stone. She did okay. the costumes for Sharon Stone once yeah. in Diabolique. Okay. She designed the costume, she did the costume credit, wow. and I thought that was very interesting. She had wow. a great career. And her her funeral was unbelievable. You spoke at her exceptional, funeral. exceptional. I was I did, was reluctant to do it, but they kept saying to me, "Well, you don't have to do it, but Lorraine would have wanted to do this." So I felt that I had to do it, and I spent great time writing about it. And I felt very, very, very rewarded after I did it because people responded so much to what I had to say. Well, because they were your real stories. Yes, yes, yes. Lorraine was divine. She divine. was. She was. She she was very inclusive. I mean, I was yes. not in her world and no, I yes. entered her world yes. and she made sure that I felt yes, comfortable. Yes, she felt she was very inclusive. Yeah. I went to her house for dinner once, uh, Mick Mick's apartment and her apartment they shared in Paris in the Rue Babylon where it was in the same building as Yves Saint Laurent lived in. And I was very impressed that she lived in a penthouse. 
And then she wanted me to come stay there when I was in Paris. I said, Lorraine, you don't want me staying in your apartment because there's too much luggage. You have to have a room for my luggage as well as me. <laughs> oh, no, she was she was amazing. And I still have her sweaters. I oh, will yeah. never I will never know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I will never well, not. fortunately, she didn't make anything for me. She wanted to. But I do have a bottle of her cologne. Ah. Yeah, that I don't ever use. Oh, sitting upstairs. Well, I mean, the people you have met in your life, which I want to go mm-hmm. through, but I first want to mm-hmm. go back to when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. you were born where? I was born in Washington D.C., but ah. my I went to my grandmother's house when I was about two months old, and my grandmother sort of uh, officially took over. I was the only child, and my parents lived in D.C., and my grandmother decided, well, he's going to stay with me. And that was in 1948. And she has a very cool name. She had a beautiful name. Yeah, my grandmother, yes. Benny Francis. She was yeah. named after her father, Benjamin. Mm. And then they put Francis in the middle to make it to know she was a girl. But she was named after her father because she was the firstborn. Oh, of that, eight kids. It, it's Benny with the B. My grandmother was Minnie. Ah. With an M, so I guess maybe that's why I love so much. So tell me about Benny. She was wonderful. She was a very strong woman, a very independent woman. She worked all her life. She was a domestic maid at Duke University. That's all I knew that she ever did. And then she retired early. And uh, she, I think, lived for 30 years in retirement. because She died around 1991. And she had a great life. I mean, she was a pillar of our family. She was, you know, very, everyone came to her for advice. She was a great cook. She cooked everything in the South. It's called dump cooking. She just dumped things in the pot. She knew by <sighs> instinct how to cook, and she knew how to grow flowers. She knew she never read a book on gardening until she read a cookbook. She had her recipes with her sisters, et cetera, et cetera, and her, her cousins and nieces. So she was just a wonderful woman. She made a beautiful household, and she was a very woman of straight faith, great faith, fabulous faith. And that's where I got my values from, I hope. I hope that I still have some of them left. You have all your values. You are nah. you are you are Ray. Stop. Nah. Stop. You are not what you appear. No. Nah. I have a feeling. No. Yes, I know you a long time. You're a wonderful man. Thank you. You so care much, about Bonnie. people. Yes. You do. Yes. Yes. You do. You care about the details. You care about everything. Everything. I care about people because people. That's how I was brought up to be. You must treat do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So you learn that in church when you're early, and so I I kept that creed very much in my life. So I do care about people. I care about people every day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so your grandmother, like. My grandmother just was a very strong woman. She just, she didn't have much conversation, but she cared about all of her sisters, all of her nieces, all of her nephews and her children. And she was the, the, the most perfect mother that, as President Bush said in his beautiful eulogy about his father, he was the best father a son or daughter could ever have. She was the best grandmother a grandson could ever have. I mean, she was just the best grandmother. And she's the one that got you interested in fashion. Is that correct? Well, I didn't get interested in fashion from my grandmother. I just got interested in fashion from just being observant. Because um, when my grandmother was, when I was a young boy, my grandmother had silver hair and it was dyed blue. There was a rinse called blue rinse. And when you had silver hair, you had to have a rinse put in it so it wouldn't tarnish and turn brown. Uh, so she had this blue rinse, but I didn't know it was blue rinse. I just thought that she was lucky to have blue hair. So I thought, oh, God must have blessed my grandmother with blue hair because she was blue hair. Uh-huh. Then I found out it was a blue rinse uh-huh. that the hairdresser put a rinse in it to keep it from turning brown, having a brown cast to it, a rusty cast. And that was a very special thing. And I just used to um, observe how she dressed and observed how she would prepare our clothes to go to church. We went to church every Sunday, and that was a ritual. It was a ritual about clothes. It was a ritual about food. She prepared the food on a Saturday. In other words, she strang- she cut the beans. Mm. She um, did the chicken. She cut the chicken. You know, she had to prepare the chicken or 
cook the pies, cook the cakes, and then Sunday we went to church, and then Sunday afternoon we had church lunch, supper after church, and then we just sat around all afternoon and looked at television or did what we did, talked on the telephone. We didn't have much to do back in those days when I was young. We talked on the phone a lot. Well, my mother, my grandmother talked on the phone a lot. I didn't talk on the phone because we weren't allowed to talk on the phone. You so I had to make my own world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get in? in how did you find Looking at Vogue. Fashion? Just looking at Vogue. Yeah, where, I discovered Vogue. Where? Where did in you discover? In the library. In the public library. I discovered how, how Vogue. How old were you? I don't know. I must have been about 10 or 9. I maybe discovered Vogue in the public library downtown in Durham. And I was just attracted by the pages, the visuals, the beauty of the, the women in Vogue, the covers of Vogue. What struck me was that it was a world. When I discovered Vogue as a young age, I discovered a world that I didn't I had not known that had been exposed to. So I was exposed to that world and at the same time going to school, a public school. I went to public schools all my life. So I had this world. I'd come home and look at these fabulous magazines the way most people, young children go and look at, I guess, coloring books or mm. children's books or cartoons or something, cartoon books. And that was my that was my escape. I looked at Vogue. I loved Vogue and I loved the pictures more than anything. I loved the way the women looked. I loved the way the people talked about. I loved the captions. I loved the way they were photographed. And I loved Mrs. Freeland. And I learned early on that there was a person who did Vogue, and her name was Deanna Freeland in those days. She was editor of Vogue in the 60s. And I learned that she was a very strong personality. So I knew who Deanna Freeland was before I was a teenager, before I was 15 years old. And did you go to college? Yes, I went to Brown University. I went to North Carolina State University first in Durham, and then I went to Brown, and I have a master's degree from Brown University in French literature. Ah, yeah, fantastic. And so when did you come to New York? 1974. I came in September of 74. Did you know anyone? Mm, no, not really. I, I knew people. I knew the people I wanted to meet. I certainly knew of the people that were the, the, the makers, and I knew Halston. I knew who Halston was, Calvin Klein, Carrie Donovan, Deanna Vreeland, of course. So I was invited to this um, show, uh, the Cody Awards. And um, after the Cody Awards, Carrie Donovan got me into Halston's house for the after party. Not Halston's house, Joe Eula's house. Joe Eula was having the after party at the Cody Awards. Halston might have won. And there, there was everyone there. Was anyone? Deanna Vreeland, Elsa Peretti, Andy Warhol, Joe Eula. All of them were there. Fred Hughes. There must be something between you arriving in New York and being invited to this fabulous party. How did no. you even... Well, you're very kind, you're very clever and intelligent enough to say that. Well, of course, I'd had a letter from Carrie Donovan who said to me, and I was at Brown and she wrote me a letter. She said, I wrote to Vogue and I said, oh, I'd like to know who discovered Pat Cleveland, the fabulous black model. <laughs> and she wrote back, she said, I'm the one who discovered on the subway on the way to work one morning. So <sighs> I knew who Carrie Donovan was. So when I got to this fabulous Cody Award party, I went up to Carrie Donovan and I said, hello. And I said, you wrote me the letter. And then she took me to the Joe Eula party. So even just writing her a letter, did what you just said, oh, I'm going to write this amazing woman a letter. No, I didn't write a letter. I wrote it to Vogue, and she answered back. I wrote a letter to the editors of Vogue, and Carrie Donovan answered it. Do you remember what you said in this letter? I just said, oh, I'd like to know who discovered Pat Cleveland. Then that was it, and then Carrie called it. you back. That was it. That's she a, wrote me back. That's an unbelievable yeah, mystery. She wrote me back and said, it was I who discovered on the way to, sub, on way to work one morning. I saw her on the subway, and I discovered her. And when did you start working with Andy Warhol? Well, I'd come to New York. And, and what is Andy Warhol like? Come on, because I'm obsessed with him as everyone else is. Andy Warhol, uh, some people compare him to a vampire. Fran Lieber says he's a vampire. She recently said that in the New York Times, so I'm not quoting out of school. Um, I did see him as a vampire, although I do know he had very dark moments. Dark things were going on in the factory that I was not privy to. I was invited to, but I refused to be a part of those things. 
So Andy was a great, great boss. He was a child. He was a very much like he approached the world the way you would, uh, uh, the innocence and purity of a child. I loved him because he accepted everyone. Everyone was fabulous. Everyone was great. Everything was great. He was always positive. It was never a dark moment at the factory. He always included everyone. You could be a drag queen or you could be Basquiat. You could be Princess Carolina Monaco or you could be Grace Jones. You were a part of the Warhol world, the universe of Warhol. And um, I came to New York for this Cody Award. Then I came back in, in um, November to volunteer, of course, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where also a letter was written to Mrs. Vreeland, but it was written to the museum. And um, you see, people have forgotten how to write letters. They're very important. Letters are important. People will read them. Do you still They're... have all your letters? No, <gasps> no. I probably have the Deanna Vreeland letter, the Carrie Donovan letter somewhere. I have a lot of letters, but they're in the attics and stuff. I'm not organized. I don't have libraries and archives. I don't know. There's people that could come in and help you with that. No, 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 I don't need that. you make a fantastic no, please. book. Good Lord, no, no, ah. no. I have, everything is in my memory. Right. Thank God I don't have Alzheimer's. Everything is in the memory speak. Right. I can remember every single thing that's important mm-hmm. to happen to me, every single dress. So um, I was in New York, and I'd gone into the Warhol's factory to be interviewed, and they saw me, and uh, they said they were very polite and very courteous. But it was not until I got to volunteer for Mrs. Vreeland in December of 74, uh, the show was the Metropolitan, at the Met, it was called Romantic and Glamorous Hollywood Design. It's about Hollywood clothes. And it was not until I had really got to work for her for six weeks that it started to happen. And she told Fred, and Fred and Andy were very good, Andy was a very good friend of Mrs. Vreeland, and she said, you have to have this person at the factory. You have to have him at the factory. And so I was at Halston's house Mm. in a party after Christmas because although I was not officially working, I was still going to parties and being invited to the right places. So I had a friend named Gail Lopez who worked at Halston, and at night she would borrow the clothes from the sample room and go to parties and Gail lived on Park Avenue, and she says, I, darling, I want you to come with me to this party at Halston's house. I said, okay, I'll come to the party. And I'll, where would I be? She said, well, come pick me up. And so I picked her up at a New York, at her Park Avenue apartment, her mother's apartment, because she was getting a divorce. And she was dressed in this fabulous Halston outfit, very beautiful outfit, of thousands and thousands of dollars. And we walked over to Halston's, and he lived in a Paul Rudolph townhouse. And as we got in there, and we stood around, and it was like a cocktail party. And Fred Hughes came up to me and said, uh, do you think you can come see me at the factory next week? Vreeland says, I have to see you. And I said, sure. And so that was, for me, the great moment. Mrs. Vreeland had said to the factory, have to have him, and they hired me for $50 a week. And what did you learn? What did I learn? Ask yeah. me, why don't you ask I me mean, what you did I do? I mean, you learned everything. What, well, did I right. do? what did you do first? What did you do? I was a receptionist for $50 a week. Uh-huh. And I went to work at 12. And I answered the phones for Fran Leibowitz. I took the messages of Fran Leibowitz and messages of all the society people who worked there. And I went to get Andy's lunch, and I took messages. And What I, did he eat for lunch? He went to, Mrs., to Brownie's, the Whole Foods store. So he had maybe like alfalfa sprouts on yeah. avocado or whole wheat. And uh-huh. he had a, maybe a, maybe, maybe we'd be known today as gluten-free pound cake. Uh-huh. He didn't eat much. I think he had a lot of, of seeds in his sandwiches or something, uh-huh. like alfalfa. I, I, I just, he called in, I picked it up. Uh-huh. And it was right across the street from the factory. And um, so I got to work there, and I got to go out every night, because Andy would then take you out with him, the whole factory. 
So if he went to a, a premiere for a movie, in those days, the whole Warhol entourage could show up at 15 people. If he was invited to a party, a Broadway premiere, 15 people could get seats. So you were part of the entourage. You you went around as a pack. You didn't go, like, you didn't get in a car with Andy, but you had the address and you got in. How fantastic. So um, it was a very wonderful time. New York is not like that now. And Andy was a great boss. I must say, I do think that Andy was a great, great person because he looked at the world like a child. He he had some sort of naivete in him to, to be open to everything. However, there were dark sides of him because he was in the back over there making piss paintings <laughs> with Victor Hugo, where... Victor Hugo was urinating on the canvas, and then Mr. Warhol would splash paint over it, and they were called the Oxidation Series. They were later, of course, hung in the Pompidou Museum <laughs> and in Paris. Oh, my god! But the piss paintings, I mean, it's not anything new. I think Francis Bacon also did sperm paintings. I'm not sure. Allegedly. I don't want to be sued. But piss paintings, we, Andy was set back there having Victor Hugo pee on canvases and having sex with boys and photographing that. This is documented in books. There are books of this documentation. And... But but did you think of your grandmother ever when you were... Of course I thought of my grandmother. Yeah. Have you been doing your homework on this? Did I don't I, did do I t- homework, dude. I don't do homework. Uh, I talk. I. Uh, yeah. Yes. You know, Andy once came to me. I was sitting there in front of my typewriter, banging up, banging, banging, banging on this manual typewriter with sprayed gold. It was old. And uh, in the afternoon, I would bang up, bang, 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 bang. And I was sitting at a very elegant desk with very beautiful surroundings. Art Deco prints from uh, Le Jean Dupas decorated the interview part of the, fact, of the factory because I was in the interview part. The factory where Andy did his art was another part, and the interview was another part. And I was sitting there, and I had to, you know, buzz people in to the steel door. And uh, one of the mid-afternoon, Andy came in, and he said, Oh, Andre, uh, why don't you let me take a picture of your penis, and I'll do a penis painting, and then I'll give it to you. You'll have a big, you'll have an Andy Warhol original. And I thought, oh, oh no, please, Andy, it's not for me. Oh, come on, Andre, don't be so tight. And I said, well, listen, listen, no, no, Andy, it's not really for me. And all I could think about is if I had a penis, my penis painted by Andy Warhol, today I would have regretted it. I don't care how much money it was worth. Mm-hmm. I did not understand that, but people, I don't judge. Victor Hugo's penis was painted many times by Andy Warhol. Victor Hugo is no longer with us. He went on to the great reward. However, Victor Hugo was back there having sex with boys. It's been photographed. Andy documented it. I'm not telling any lies. There are books with pictures of Andy photographing Victor Hugo having sex with some unknown boys, and he was documenting them in paintings and art. So that was him. I don't judge that. But he wanted to get me in that, and I said, no, no, no. If I need an Andy Warhol painting, if that's the way I'm going to get it, I'm not going to get it. Because all I could think of is, can you imagine my grandmother says, reads a book or magazine, and someone says, well, we saw Andre, and they said it was his penis, penis in a painting. Dad couldn't have that. All right, no. Well, good for Benny. Good for <laughs> Benny. And then when did you uh, go work at Vogue? I went to work at Vogue first in 1983 because I had been uh, ushered into Vogue. Uh, through Mr. Alexander Lieberman, of course, because I, Mrs. Vreeland had written also a letter to Vogue when I went to work for the factory in 75, January 75. She apparently had written this most extraordinary letter to then the uh, human resources lady, Mary Campbell, at Vogue. And I had been told to go to Vogue, and then I met with Miss Mary Campbell, and she says, well, no one has ever received a letter like this letter that Deanna Vreeland wrote about you. Carrie Donovan also told me that because she was then at Vogue at that time. But I didn't get the job then. So then I went to see Mr. Lieberman in January 83, I think. 
And he buzzed me into his office and he said, the only person you have to convince is Grace Mirabella. You can come here. You can do anything. You can work. And I'd already been working at Women's Wear Daily for about five years. So I already had my Warhol to Women's Wear Daily. And uh, I was a big thing in Women's Wear Daily in Paris. So he says, whatever you want to do, convince Grace Mirabella. You've got to convince Grace Mirabella that you can work here. So I went downstairs and Grace Mirabella was a hostile interviewer. Really? She's a... Uh, she was very formal, very courteous. She was not rude, but the first thing she said was, all I can remember is that you were sitting on the front row in Paris, you and Marion McAvoy clapping for Claude Montana. <laughs> okay. And that was the way to open up the, the interview. I said, yes, because I thought he was talented. Uh-huh. <laughs> you but probably didn't answer it with that tone of voice. No, okay. no, I did not answer with that not. tone okay, of voice. Okay, just checking, okay. You've well, earned this tone of voice, I yes. With that tone of okay. Voice. okay, I should have right. said, yeah. yes, I should have. Yeah. I could have gone lower than lower than yeah. low. I could have gone okay. ghetto on her street. <laughs> but I did not go ghetto street. I did not get the job. And then, uh, so later I was doing things in Paris, uh, working, freelancing for Francine Crescent of French Vogue. And um, this wonderful friend of Arthur Elgord did a wonderful video of me in back in a car with Carl Lagerfeld after Carl Lagerfeld Chloe's show, and I interviewed me interviewing Carl in the back seat. And somehow, Arthur Elgort showed this tape to Grace Marabella, which made her have a second thought. So I was called in, and she thought, oh, okay, maybe you can work, and we'll make you a fashion news editor. And I was thrilled. But by the time I got home to Astor Place, two stops in the subway, I had gone down the hall, and I saw Anna Winter's office on the left, and she said hello. But two stops in the subway from 42nd Street and Madison, Madison Avenue, there was a handwritten note under my door by Anna, from Anna Winter saying, welcome to Vogue. Now, pr- let me give you some background. All that time, Anna Winter was making a huge rise in this world of fub- passion publications. She was working at the New York Magazine, and she had already made a name for herself as creative director. And so Alex Lieberman made the title creative director for her. She came to Vogue, and she worked big- closely with Alex Lieberman. She was maybe kind of a threat to Grace Mirabella. I'm not sure. So Thank you. <laughs> anyway, says she was, making her rise. And in the middle of all this, I'd be going out with Andy to parties, and there would be Anna Winter. He says, oh, gee, Andre, go over there and say, Anna Winter, isn't she great? I said, are you crazy? She doesn't know who I am. What do you mean, Andy? Go over there and say hello to her. She said, I said, Andy, she doesn't even know who I am. I would dare go talk to her. So by the time I got home, that handwritten note was there, and that's how Anna Winter and I became friends. She took me under her wings in my first two years, and she was great. And she named me creative director when she became editor-in-chief of Vogue, which was a very pioneering moment in the history of fashion. I was the first black male, black, very, very dramatic, flamboyant, queenie, gay male making it Vogue. And that was a breakthrough. And now we have Edward Innenfeld as editor-in-chief of Vogue and British Vogue. So Edward gives me credit because I, I did pave the way. And I didn't realize it then. I was doing the work, but I didn't realize what, what my position meant. But um, it, was a, it was a great ride. I had a great career. But you were certainly the very first African-American man to, that's right. that's to right. become a tastemaker. That's right. If Andre says wear yellow, we would all be wearing yellow. Yes, yes, yes. If I would say you're wearing Pantone Living Coral, you'd all be wearing Living Coral, <laughs> which I do not think is the color of the year. However, having said that, I guess they have the right to say it. Uh-huh. But living coral is not the color of the year. Oh, is that what they say? It That's is. What they, the living color is the color of the year is living coral by Pantone. Then what is it to, uh, the, according to Andre? Always red. 
always red. Well, it's the signature color of the George red. Hotel, gives you by energy. the way. It gives you energy. It does. It gives you energy. It does. Red. Okay. So you are wearing red today. I wear red every day. You do? Yeah. And, and uh, who this makes this? Norma this, this, this is Norma Kamali. This is a Norma sleeping bag Kamali. coat. She went on a camping trip with one of her friends, and she was in the woods, <laughs> <laughs> and she was on a sleeping bag, and she had to get up and go to the bathroom, and she realized it was freezing cold, and so she just wrapped her sleeping bag around her and went to the privacy of the woods to urinate, and she realized, wait, this could be a great coat. And this is back in 1980 or something, and I have three coats. Three. I have actually five. Are they all red? All red. They're all red. Well, one is zebra. Okay. One is zebra printed, zebra stencil, but it's dark gray with a zebra stenciling. Clearly, you mentor young people. Yeah. You do, and yes. I know. And your work at the museum uh, or yes. at the school in yes. in Atlanta. Scats. Yes. Scats. You are on. The, you are on the board. Yes. You are on the board. Yes. So you never actually went there, though. No, I went there. I was on the board. I went there for board meetings every fifteen. Oh no, 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 no! For school, like you, you went to Brown. No, did you go? To, you never went to college there. Where? At SCAD? Yeah. No, never. Okay, I, mean, okay, okay, no, okay. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know you've spoken there and they've done. Yeah, I've been on the board and I've been on the board of trustees and I'm very involved in it still and I love the school. It's a great school. It's a great art school. It is a great, great art school. And the visionary is the president, Paula Wallace, who in 40 years ago had the vision to sell her Volkswagen and mortgage her family's house, her uh, house and start an art school in the South where there was no art school. She thought she felt a need. She wanted to do something big. And she opened a school in the downtown Omri in Savannah, Georgia with 78 students, I wow. think. And they lived upstairs and they took their showers upstairs. They lived in the main building. And today that school has like maybe 50,000 students. I don't know. You must have an honorary doctorate. From I, I certainly do from How Scott. many do you have? I only have one. You only have one? Yes, Scott. That is hard to believe. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe. FIT? Nothing? Scott, nothing. Oh, nothing. come on. No, no, no. I, I only have one. Yeah? Scott. Okay, well, hopefully the president of FIT is listening uh, Oh, uh, the president of Brown. Oh, certainly the president of Brown. Yes, that's a that's a that's yes, quite a school. Yes, yes, yes. That's quite a school. Yeah, I love Brown. But okay, now I'm sitting here talking to Andre Leontali, who I want to ask so many questions. But also, what is, what does it feel like to have a movie done, the most amazing documentary? It's just I, I I've told everyone in this room before they have uh, they should have seen it before. Yeah, so beautiful, yeah, so poignant. Yeah. What is it like, the gospel according uh, to Andre? It's both extraordinarily rewarding. Very uh, challenging, and it's very. I have to live up to a certain standard. I am very happy with the film. Kate Novak was her first full feature length film. She's married to a director, Andrew Rossi. And, and how uh, did it come about? Well, Andrew Rossi had done First Monday in May for the Met. And uh, the girls at Vogue had said, Anna, I would love for you to be in the First Monday in May, which was about a certain show, you know, Andrew Bolton's Chinese show. Through the Looking Glass. It was a great show. Right. And I, and I said, I don't want to feel like, and, and I'm in a mood, like I walked in here, I'm in a mood. I don't feel like doing it today because I can be very crappy and bitchy. And I said, no. And the girl said, okay. Then two days later, Anna would very much like for you to be involved in the first Monday in May. I don't want to be in a film. I don't want to be in Let somebody else do that. Anna would, uh, would consider this as a favor to her to mm -hmm. be in the first Monday in May. So that meant do it. So I reluctantly went in and did this this tape. I went into a room more complex than this, but of this kind of stuff and all kind of people. And I sat down and I was the last one to be interviewed. They were holding the film up for me to be in the in the film. And I said something and uh, I got in the film. And so uh, this man was running around taping out of winter for this and I didn't, he was so quiet. 
And then, so I did the film out of courtesy and respect to Anna Winter, my boss and friend. And then the girls at Vogue said, oh, by the way, would you mind going to Dallas to represent this film? This is not my film. This is the Vogue, the Met. And I'm not that involved with the Met. I'm not involved with the Met at all. I'm, I'm, I'm a contributing editor at Vogue, but I'm not involved with the actual runnings of the Mets, Met Ball. Mm. And I said, oh, sure, I'll go to Dallas and, and do the film as long as you pay for everything and send me the right kind of car. <laughs> so I went, in, uh, I went to Dallas, and that was a great, great ex exercise. And then, uh, would you mind going to the Mendocino Film Festival? Oh, why not? I don't care. Oh, would you mind? Every weekend, it was at the Paris Theater when it opened. Would you mind going on the weekends and doing the Q&A for us? I mean, it's not like they didn't have people to represent the film right. who were in the film. Why did they want me to go and do the Q&A? And I'm not even, I have one second in the film. Because you're fascinating and, and interesting so, so there and very I go, tall. Four weeks in a row, they send me the car that picks me up. I go first to have dinner. By 9 o'clock, I'm sitting in the front of the theater in the Q&A answering the questions about the film. And Kate, Andrew's wife, had gone to all these uh, Q&As, and I, she never, I never met her. She sat there, and I should let me know who she was. She sat in the back, and no one introduced her. She was t summing me up, testing me. So she then had a vision that she could do a film on me. By the time we had lunch a year later, she said, well, you know, I went to all the Q&As, and I was absolutely fascinated how you handle the audience. And I was really impressed, and the, I got the idea when one person came twice, he came twice on the weekend. He came, had came on a Saturday, he came on a Friday, he said, he stood up and he said, I moved to New York because of you. He said, mm -hmm. I came to New York because of you. And I looked at you when I was young, and I figured if you could do it in fashion, I could have a career in fashion. And she says, I want to do a, a documentary on you. And I, and I liked you, and I said, okay, let's do it. How long did it take? Nine months, Nine 10 months, months yeah. And uh, when's the first time you saw it? Was it with an audience or did you get a private screening? With Kate. With Kate. I saw it with Kate, her husband. And did you have many changes? Oh, did... no. I no? was overwhelmed by the beauty of it by the beginning. I was overwhelmed by her sensitivity to my story and her appreciation and respect of the values of the story, which were very important. The southernness of it all, the religiousness of it all, the home, the sense of home, not the sense of family, but the sense of having a home structure. I was impressed by her cinematography, which was beautiful. I loved the way she did the, the, the landscape. I loved the way she just, it was so contrastive to so many parts of my life. And I was really overwhelmed. Mm. And she got Vreeland in there. Please do not stand there, Mrs. Vreeland is saying in an archival footage. Mm. And she got Anna Winter in there, Tom Ford in there, and Mark Jacobs in there. And she got Hippo from my church in there, Beth Ann Hardison. Um, she got everyone in there that I basically wanted. She's the only person that I really reluctantly regret that was not in it, that was interviewed for it, was President Wallace from SCAD mm. and Annette Lorenta, who was a dear, dear friend. And she'd given a lunch in her house in the country, and it was a riveting lunch. I mean, it was riveting. It had to be edited, but it was a really riveting lunch. But I'm still very, very happy with the film. And are you still promoting it? Oh, yeah. We go. Every, I was out all fall. I went to Toronto to the AGO, which is the biggest art gallery of Ontario. I went there. They screened it about three weeks ago. I had was there for four days. That was a wonderful experience. Um, the audience was fabulous. The audience was so moved. I went to SCAD. I filmed it in SCAD in September and mm. Atlanta. And then I filmed it in SCAD in October. That was two trips. And then I just had filmed it in Charlotte in the beginning of uh, September 
in, at the Met. Oh, fun. yeah. And I, and, w- and uh, when did you leave Vogue? I don't remember. I did, I just was in and out of Vogue. I didn't really officially leave Vogue. I'm still a contributing editor. I guess I left Vogue. Good, maybe. I don't remember the date. I just sort of like organically segued out of Vogue. And and what's what do you think of the, our fashion um, industry right now? I think it's in flux. I don't think it's in chaos. I think it's in flux. I think there's a changing of the guard. I don't know where it's going. I don't follow fashion like I used to. I only follow my friends, Tom Ford and Ralph Lauren, the people that I really respect and go to see their shows. Carolyn Herrera, I would go see her show, but she then retired. She's a great, great designer. She's a great woman, a great woman of elegance. She's always been an inspiration to me. She's always dressed people of style, and she's a person of style. Um, I think that fashion will always rise up from the ashes. And like a horse, like a stallion, it just rises up on its hind legs and gets its strength. There's always going to be excitement in fashion. You're retired, but you're very much still involved in fashion with this 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 podcast, aren't you? I do not think I am retired. No. Oh, no. what? Oh, retired. No, not retired. No, I just quit one job. You quit one I, job. Yeah. Oh, oh, forgive yeah, me. Yeah. That's a very bad yeah. thing to say retired. Yeah, no. Well, I don't think retired is a bad thing. Oh, I do. Oh, I don't do? play golf. I don't play cards. What would I do if I retired? Uh, I just start new businesses. Oh, oh God. You that. got that fabulous end. You should be running that. Well, I you could stay there the every things. day and just be a great uh, <laughs> hostess of the inn. It would be great if people woke up and, and there you were standing at the top of the steps in the desk and, "Good morning, Bobby. Can you get me a coffee?" That would be a fabulous thing to do. Oh no, you I, make I, I far t- uh, no, I'm far too young for that. Okay. Maybe in ten or fifteen. Oh years. my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know me. I run up and down those okay, steps. Okay, run up and down. Uh, steps. You know me. I'm a I'm a health fanatic. Run up and down those steps. Yes, and you know I'm a health coach now. Really? I am. I went back to school. I got my degree as a health coach. Congratulations. Yeah. Tell me when you would like me to work with you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I, I like well, you got all kinds slowly. of lives. I do. I do. And so do you. And that's why I find you so fascinating. Uh, who, who made the biggest difference in your life? Wanda Garrett, my yeah. English teacher, and Cynthia P. Smith, deceased, my French teacher. Deceased, but fabulous. She was like Jean Brody. You know the film, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody? Mm-hmm. Except she wasn't scandalously sexually, having sex over with the painter. The painted teacher. She was fabulous. She made French come. I, that's why I majored in French, because of her. She was made French so alive. And by the time I took French in level one through four, level three and level four were simply five days a week in the lab. All you had to do was go sit, put the earphones on, and listen to French. And then she, maybe every other week she'd give a lecture or something, and it was fabulous. And every summer she'd go to Aix-en-Provence, Arles, and all these fabulous places in the south of France. And she'd just bring back the slides and show you the slides. And she had two dresses. This is what it was. She had two dresses. They were the same dress. She bought them in Paris. And she wore them the day she presented the slideshow. One was red with a white collar and cuffs. The other one was Pierre de Poul. And this is when I first learned Pierre de Poul. And she said, this is Pierre de Poul. And it's actually called houndstooth. But in France, it's Pierre de Poul, chicken scratch, chicken feet. Feet of the chicken, they make those shiny patterns. And that's when I really discovered fashion. It's through Cynthia P. Smith. She didn't even know it. She said, this is my Pierre de Poul dress. And uh, we didn't talk about Paris. You lived in Paris. Loved Paris. And, I miss Paris. And did you which? And you worked for in, when you were in Paris. I worked for Women's Wear Daily in Paris and Vogue. And you said before that you were very big at Women's Wear Daily. What yeah. was? Well, I was I was sent there in 1978 in January to be the fashion editor, and then but, but the time I got there, they made me the bureau chief for a while. Because I just took Paris by storm. I just, everything I did, I was maybe like 29. Everything I wrote, people would say it's the most wonderful thing we've ever read about Yves Saint Laurent. On a review, my first review of Yves Saint Laurent, 
that people were just sending me accolades about this. And I just typed this out, banged this out on the telex machine. You know, a telex machine is a very heavy thing. If you've never seen one. It's have very, not. Well, honey, let me tell you. You have earned your keep if you sat there at 12 o'clock at night and banged out your story on a telex machine. Hmm. It makes noise. Blah, 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 blah. It's noisy. It's nasty. It's heavy. It's big. And after you finish, you get a drink or you go to sleep. And so um, I was the king of Paris, as Betty Catru said, that Eve as Eve's alone. And suddenly he was the king in the film. And suddenly he, I introduced him to Eve, and suddenly he was the king. And I was sort of the king. I was the king, and that came with many, many, many highs and lows, many ups and downs. People adored me, and they also hated me. And how was, hard is that? It's very hard. Yep. People were calling me King, uh, Queen Kong. Clara Saint called me Queen Kong. She came with a name, and then a friend of mine, Paloma Picasso, told me on a very important day, she said to me, I want you to know that Clara Saint is the one who's calling you Queen Kong. And then I just internalized that. And they kept it for 30 years. And that was a very racist thing to say. And then my bosses were saying things like, at a certain point, I was so controversial that clapping on the front row for Claude Montana mm-hmm. and embracing Karl Lagerfeld as well as Hubert Dijonshaw, I covered the whole waterfront. I just did not see beauty in one person. I saw the beauty of Karl Lagerfeld as well as the beauty of Hubert Givenchy, who had an all-black cabine in haute couture, an all-black American cabine in the haute couture. He was the only a designer that I know in my lifetime who had a show with all black mannequins, not even apology to one. Hmm. And that was pioneering. And uh, so people got jealous and started saying things, and they didn't, they didn't like me. And I did fabulous things. I did things like go to Maxime's wearing a black cashmere dressing gown a la Oscar Wilde from Karl Lagerfeld's wardrobe. Uh, at the last minute, and I had to go to a party at Maxime's, and I'd forgotten about it, and I couldn't go home because to go home would be like a, an hour to get home and change. And I said, oh, I've got to go to Maxime's to this party for Valentino, and I don't have anything to wear, and it's black tie. He says, well, I have the idea. Just to put this dressing gown on and put on one of my white shirts and a black tie, and you'll be fabulous. And I did that, and I, I, was, I was just va- fabulous, I thought. And I thought if Carl Lagerfeld said it, it's great. And it was a scandal. The next day, they were scandalized. People were scandalized that I went to Maxime's in a dressing gown. At least I had on black pants and a shirt and a tie. I didn't just go to a dressing gown with just my jockey shorts on. Well, you were just a pioneer. Oh, they were scandalized. It was a social scandal. I almost think they wanted to get me fired. Of course, Valentina thought it was highly amusing. But don't you think your being a risk taker is really what has gotten you to all these new jo- careers and all yeah, these I've new people? Yeah, I've always taken risks. Always, always. I don't think about a, li- a long, lifelong plan. It's always about feel your instinct, feel guts, feel what you feel is good about people, and go for it. And uh, is there anyone that really, really, really was responsible um, for something that was not positive? I mean, I've never heard you say a lot of not nice things about people. Oh, no, I don't want to talk about negative people. Even people have been very harmful or hurtful to me. I would not say anything negative except that Clarice kind of did call me Queen Kong. Yeah. That was her invention. Now, she was a great personality, but what goes around comes around because karma will bite you in your rectum. Tush. Miss <laughs> Clara Saint was a great uh, heiress uh, of a South American fortune, and she lived in the Plaza Atenee. She, re- she wasted a fortune living in the Plaza Atenee with her lover, Tade. Tade Klasowski was the son of the great painter, Baltus. And one morning, Clara Saint had to wake up and read that Lulu de la Falaise, 
also a friend of hers because she's the PR director at Saint Laurent Rive Gauche. Lulu is in the studio at Rive Gauche and an image of Rive Gauche. Lulu de la Falaise and Tade Klasowski were wed. Mm. She had to read it in the announcements in the paper. And the day that Lulu and Tade had their big wedding ball in the Ile du Bois, Andy Warhol did not go. Andy Warhol was in Paris having dinner with Clara Saint. So it, it, went to, it came to bite her, and she became very bitter. I don't know where she is now. I wish her well. But she was a nasty French woman in, you know, from South America who said this, and she had great style. She had great style. However, she did have great style. She had great shoes. <laughs> she's very, very, she's about your height. She was very beautiful. But she was nasty. And so I will only say that because that's what she said. One of my bosses at Women's Wear, after there was a, you know, the controversy of me being all this fabulous person and all of this embracing the youth, he came to Paris and said, oh, you slept with every designer in town, including the women. And I thought, that is the most racist thing you've ever I never heard of any such a thing. Of the people, why do people say things like this? And this is my first experience with that kind of uh, controversy. But I overcame. But think about our world today. We would not, our fashion industry and the- Oh, totally. Would, it wouldn't be anywhere no. if you weren't there paving the way. Oh, God bless you, Bobby. Listen, but it's true, though. No, there are other people. Listen, I want to take credit for lots of things. John Galliano, I, John Galliano, I want to take credit for his career because I was allowed to absolutely embrace him when he had his backers had pulled out. I helped to find the $50,000 that put him back on the map. I helped him to have the show in Madame Schlumberger's house in March of 1994, which got him the job at Givenchy, which got him the job at Dior. And that's how his career had a big jump start. It was because of my relationship to John Galliano and his then muse, Amanda Harlick. And without me, and John Galliano will tell you this, this couldn't have happened. I was at Vogue, and Vogue was allowing me to take and embrace him because I was in Paris. And that was one of my unofficial duties, to take care of John Galliano. Really? Because I saw the light. I went to one of his previews at 11 o'clock at night, and I saw him in his garret up in an attic somewhere, like a Dickens. You know, they were heating up the canned food on a little Bunsen. You call them Bunsen burners? Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, a little tan, can, you know, yeah. put a tan, you light it. Is it a color Bunsen? It's a Bunsen burner, yeah. They were heating up their food on a Bunsen thing, and, mm-hmm. and then on the side in the corner was this great dress. This extraordinary dress, extraordinary proportions. It was the best of the old and the new. It was the best of the 19th century with John Galliano's vision of sexuality today. And he said, this is what the collection is going to look like. And I thought, this is going to be an extraordinary show. And I had the, I've trained. They don't keep me here for my looks, as Judge Judy says. <laughs> I had been trained to see, through Vogue, what is the best. And mm-hmm. I went back and I said to Anna Winter, this is going to be the second coming of fashion. We have to embrace this. And to make a long story short, that show happened and his backer pulled out. Then we had to push the show into maybe he had four weeks to do a show for the season. It was March, fall, winter. And he did 18 looks on $50,000. Everything was free. The jewels were free. They were loaned by all the jewelers of Paris. The makeup was free. The shoes were free from Manolo Blanc. And the models were free. Hmm. And the hair was free. Everything. Everyone donated, and everything was just great. And with this show of 18 pieces of clothing, mostly black, with accents of pink, John Galliano redefined fashion at that moment, and he became this famous designer who took over Dior. And Dior is like the capital of French fashion. Even more than Salomon, Dior is the crown of French fashion. You know, they're over there destroying Dior. They're having those demonstrations 
the gilets jaunes, but they apparently they crashed in the windows of Dior. You you say Dior, you are talking about fa- high fashion, the history of high fashion in the modern world. Andre, why do you love fashion so much? Because fashion is an, a code. It is a moral code. An individual has a moral responsibility to be embraced by fashion, no matter what it is. Whether you're wearing uh, jeans and and, and, and and runners sneakers, or whether you're wearing high heels from Manolo Blahnik and the latest Prada. Fashion is a code, and you can change people the way they respond to you, or you can alter people's situation and circumstances based on fashion. Fashion has always been a moral code, and I've always loved it. When I realized that people use their fashion for power, you know, certain people have used their fashion for power. Catherine the Great was a very extraordinary woman. She also had maybe five to 10,000 dresses. She used her dresses as codes of power, ceremonial power. That's the royal family. The importance of the codes of dress in the royal family. It's a kind of, not only a prestige badge, but it's just, it's a part of the life that can make symbols. Your fashion can be a symbol of you. My red coat is a symbol of my freedom, my bohemian, my red. You know, obviously I don't follow the rules. You can be an outrider. Um, Jackie Kennedy was a great, 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 great leveler of fashion, and she influenced many people in the way she dressed as a first lady. Did you ever meet her? Oh, no. No. No, I did meet her once, but it was at a party. She was wearing a Valentina dress at one of Mrs. Freeland's balls, the Met Ball. I spoke to her on the phone once, Mm. but that was briefly. But then she she sent a note to Mrs. Freeland, and she said, perhaps your exotic friend would love reading this to you, Mrs. Freeland. (laughs) <laughs> and Mrs. Williams showed it to me. Exotic friend. Exotic. I thought exotic. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm sitting there in her house. What are your exotic friend? Oh. But I'm very close friends with her sister, Lee. Lee, who is a very wonderful human being. I discovered as a child that fashion was a very important part of one's being because when one went to church, we, we had very simple lives. We were very humble people. But when one went to church, one put on the most important uh, items of clothing be you the child or my grandmother or my great-grandmother or my aunts. Everything was preserved for church. The best was preserved for church. So when you went to church on Sunday, you put on your best foot forward, and everyone in church was absolutely turned out. Beautiful hats, gloves, handbags, shoes, coats, whatever, furs, whatever. Fashion was the moment that you stood up and became a very proud person in your neighbor, in your community. And there was the church, and there was fashion in the church. And then at school, you know, at school, fashion didn't mean anything because I was young. I didn't know. But when I got to high school, fashion was a very important part of the life because Ann Bibby, who was the homecoming queen, had the best clothes. But then her mother was a registered nurse, and her mother went to the best stores that were not usually um, frequented by black people because she wanted Ann Bibby to look a certain way. And Ann Bibby had this fabulous, fabulous tweed dress and coat when she was homecoming queen fabulous dress. It was just, it was like something off the charts. And it came from a very, very prestigious store that catered most to the white upper crust people. So I realized early on that fashion was a very important part of who you could be or become. And you, the way you stand and the way you are. Fashion is also what you do in your house. If you put a rose in a certain kind of glass, not just your drinking glass, if you put a rose in a little glass that you bought at uh, William Sonoma or you an old pot you found in the backyard, a rusted pot, and then you take it into the house and put a sunflower in it, that becomes a kind of fashionable style that you express for who you are, or the way you present a biscuit on a plate, or the way you present a glass of water to your friend when they come to your house. So your glasses must be a part of your style, your pillows on your sofa, 
your 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 china, your blankets, everything is fashion. The trees, the way you cut your the the flowers you choose in your garden. The French people knew fashion was a very important thing. Look at Versailles. Not only was the building important, but it's the way they acted and the way they ate for food. The food was refined, perhaps over-refined. The food was as colorful as the clothes. You know, those with pinks and oranges, those gelées and soutons, gelées, en soute, en aspic. All of that is part of the style of fashion. And fashion has always been, I've always loved the texture of clothes. I've always loved the texture of silk, fabric. I love the beautiful sheets on a bed. That's a very important part of life. Your sheets are very crucial to, to, your, to, the, to your well-being. And what kind of sheets do you sleep on? Well, I don't sleep on the most expensive sheets, but I, I am lucky enough to afford uh, portal sheets. But uh, they are very expensive. So but cotton. They're cotton, cotton. Pure cotton. Pure cotton. And they're lavishly printed or stenciled. And uh, they'll last forever. Do you, iron, do you iron them or get them uh, no, ironed? No, I have. Uh, listen, when I, when I feel like being extravagant, I have them ironed. They're $30 a sheet. So most times I'm throwing them in the washing right. machine myself. <laughs> I'm very happy to throw them in the sheet and dry them, and they put them on the bed. Un thirty dollars a sheet. That's you know thirty dollars is a hundred dollars a bed. No, I'm not that extravagant. Yeah, no. no, 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 no. Have you ever been in a Uniqlo? What's Uniqlo? The t-shirt place. Oh, some of my Zara. Friends. Oh, of course I've been to Zara. No, but you don't know Uniqlo. I, I, I do. My people, okay. people. I know Uniqlo because friends of mine say I've got to go to Uniqlo and buy some t-shirts. Or I did go to Uniqlo once for a Pharrell opening. He had some t-shirts, so I have been in Uniqlo. I, I, I wear them. I wear cashmere sweaters. I wear the men's sweaters. They're like eighty nine dollars. And, and people beautiful. always say, "Is that Prada?" Uh, yeah, and that's what they what? say. It looks just like it. And that's what they say. Yeah. And I am very well aware of Uniqlo. And I thought it was cool when Pharrell had some t shirts up in there for nineteen dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I know what so Uniqlo is. I, I know just, what Zara is. And would you wear these clothes? No, you wouldn't. No, no. You wouldn't even try it. No. Okay. No, no. But I am happy that yeah. people find beautiful things in Uniqlo and mm -hmm. Zara. Okay. And I admire people when they have H&M. I did have some gloves from H&M once that I lost. I thought were fabulous. And they were like $4 or something. And how come you never tried your hand at being a designer, which I think you could so easily do? Too much do? stress. Too much stress? Too much stress. Can you imagine the pressure of having that, that pressure? Twelve, uh, four, four collections a year? Can you imagine the stress of Carl Lagerfeld having to wake up and sketch another collection after he's done it for all his life? I mean, don't you want to just have a break sometimes? Phoebe Philo, come on. She she left uh, Celine. Where Why? is she now? Uh, she's probably at home taking care of her babies. Or she's working on uh, her new thing that's a not A new out thing, yet. whatever it is. Yeah. Can you imagine the stress of people? The stress of having to come up with another bow idea. So so what, what are, what are we going to see you doing in the future? Well, I hope you're going to see me doing wonderful things that would be positive. I hope you're going to see me perhaps writing books or doing something. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm not, at this point, uh, taking design out of the sphere. You know, hopefully I may want to do a collection of caftans or something. You know, like a very commercial thing of caftans, like being on a television selling caftans, the way Isaac Mizrahi does oh, on QVC. I know the people. I, oh, my I God. I hook you up. Yeah. I hook you up. Oh, my God. You have yeah. to. Listen to me. Uh, Isaac Mizrahi makes $300 million on QVC. And Isaac Mizrahi is a talented person. And he this is. is the future of American fashion, I think. You know, Zach Posen is a great, talented designer. You were in his movie, I saw. His oh, yeah, and I loved him. He's a great, yeah. talent. He's a talented He's so human. talented. He's a very talented Yeah. Man. And his parents are wonderful. Yeah. It's a wonderful family life. Yeah. No, I, I loved you. I loved you in the movie. And oh. I always knew he was so incredible. I didn't, I didn't realize the rise and the fall. Yeah. The and rise and the, the fall was again. big. Yeah. And he was a talented person, very young. And his fall was very big. But he rose up. 
and he is incredible. He's written a cookbook, and he designs beautiful clothes, and the clothes are worn by celebrities. Glenn Close loves his clothes. And that, and that Princess Eugenie just got right. married in one of them, didn't she? Uh, I think so. She changed her, is it Beatrice or Eugenie? One of them got married, yeah. I do suggest you find some really cool young intern, because I hang. You I, have wonderful interns. I do. Well, I met Michelle two years ago in the Apple store, so oh. you never know where you're going to meet, oh. and you see what they're good at, but someone has to organize your, yes, your, I do. I'm so your organized. books and your It's photos. a mess. It's a mess. No, it's awesome. So mentally, mentally, I know where everything is yeah, mentally. Right. I think I know, yeah. but it's a mess in two yeah. cities, in North Carolina and in New York. Oh. I mean, I, it's just a complete mess. Okay. Well, I think it also could be a great TV show following oh, following. God. Andre around to organize this yes, thing. Yes, yes. What Andre, a good idea. All these people that are listening out there, if you could tell everyone just one thing, if they could do one thing that will change their life, what would it be? Do your homework. As an intern, do your homework. What I love is both you. This I focused. I, I see. I've scanned everyone in this room. They don't know it, but <laughs> I see that this lady in the beige sweater has a skill, and so do you. Do you have you listening? You have skills. These skills are important. Whatever it is you're doing, it must be important to Bobby Singh on the podcast or something because you're doing it meticulously in a little book. And that's a skill that will go with you for life. And, and then she's going to organize it. She's going to make sure she knows sure. where the books go. No, no, go. no. And she's doing it with a great <laughs> smile because uh, the president of SCAD does that. She sits around with a little book and she just takes notes religiously of every single thing. But when you have a skill, it never leaves you because when I took typing in high school, keep this in the podcast, I took typing in high school and everyone looked at me and said, oh, typing, why are you taking typing for? I said, you'll never know when one has to have a job as a typist in a typing pool. I mean, it was a skill. I thought that was a very important skill. And I, I don't regret it because I type very fast. And I regret that I dropped out of typing. I don't know how to type. I've written nine books and I'm all over my social media. Nine I don't books? know. I don't know how to type. That's extraordinary. I don't know how to type. Typing is a skill. And I'm going to tell you, I never regret taking this typing. And I loved it. And I loved the teacher. And I loved the, the class. I loved going to the class. And in, in those days, you just, uh, you just, uh, boys would take typing. And I just took it. I thought, oh, that's a skill. And, you know, it's with your hands. That's a skill. The one thing I regret is that I take piano lessons because I, I can type fast. So obviously, I can play the piano with very great agility or something, you know. And where could people listening to this podcast find you and know everything about you? They would find me uh, probably sitting at home on one of my sofas. You don't want them coming to your house, so perhaps they you could follow they could follow you on your Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. I love to f- put on Instagram when I have wonderful things to say and wonderful things to do. Exp- I don't Instagram every day. I don't just Instagram a, a plate of food that I've had. Why not? Be because, so fascinating. No, 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 no. Well, I do the Marshville several times, but they could find me sitting on my porch in the summer, talking, reading. And I do have some guests up, but they don't have to. They can't go in my house. I don't like people in my house breaking things. People come to my house and they tend to break antiques, and I don't uh, like that. My best friends. Oh no! One of my best friends. She's 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 broken a few of my fabulous pieces. She's just clumsy. Well, she was just got fretful. All right. Well, maybe you gave her too much wine. No. No. <laughs> I gave her too much to do. Ah. That's what it was. I told her to hang up something, and oh. she she got fretful. Oh, but your Instagram is just Andre Leontali. Yes, uh, Andre Tally Instagram. But I show, I, I just recently sh- uh, loved uh, Mikaling Thomas, this great African American painter who is inspired by Manet and Matisse. There's a great show at Columbia University called uh, Posing Modernity about the importance of the black model in Matisse, from, Mate, from Manet to Matisse. Manet's Olympia, and it's a very brilliant show. 
It's an extraordinary show, and uh, she does extraordinary paintings. I love to discover new people. I, when I discovered Kara Walker, I never, ever thought. And I know Kara Walker, and I discovered her work late when she had a retrospective at the Whitney up on Madison. And it was just, did you ever see a sugar sculpture? I did not. The domino, you know no. about the domino when she had the, the sugar? No. She did a whole sculpture in a sugar factory, and it was the sphinx of the domino. It was like the Anchamama. Wow. It was the most, it was made out of sugar. And uh, I love to discover people like that. I love to discover people who are painters, Kehinde Wiley, um, artists, uh, Bradley Theodore, writers. I love to dialogue with writers. I think you need another journalist job. I think you need. I do too. I do. I do. Or a TV job or something. Yeah. Is the name of your podcast Long Story Short? Yes. Oh, that's great. Except you're, you'll do a podcast okay. and you could do Long Story Long because okay. you tell really good stories. Did I have really good stories? Yeah, I oh, know yes. he's entertained. I know, I do. I think you need your own podcast. You need your own magazine. Okay. You need your I own need line everything. of clothes. Yes. Oh, we have not that in the podcast. We, we have not seen the last of Andre Lantel. No, we've not. And I'm yes. happy to have done this. I, it oh. took me forever to get here, but I'm thrilled to do it. And, and, I, and now you're in a better mood? I'm in a better mood. He's really sweet. Much better. Totally yeah, everyone's sweet. And as long as I don't go home in a Toyota camera. And that was my conversation with Andre Leontali. What I loved about the documentary was how personal it was and how many amazing life experiences he's had and how many incredibly cool people he has worked with and stories that you cannot believe. I especially love listening and hearing about his grandmother. That's it for this episode of Long Story Short. Follow me online at JustBobbyBrown. And if you guys want to ask me a question, just go to askbobbybrown at gmail.com. Ask me any question, and please tell me who else you want me to interview and what topics you want me to cover. If you really like the podcast, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like the show, send me a few bucks. I promise to send it to charity. And that's a wrap for Long Story Short. This is Long Story Short with Bobby Brown, a Gallery Media Group production. 